0: Hello and welcome to Soberanía, the Mexican politics podcast. I'm your co-host, José Luis Granado Ceja, Mexican-born journalist working in Mexico City. I'm a contributor to Venezuela Analysis and an editor at Mexico Solidarity Media. And I'm joined by my co-host, Kurt Hackbarth. How are you, Kurt? Doing very well,
1: José Luis. Ready for episode three of Soberanía.
0: That's right. It feels like they keep giving us more and more things to talk about. We wanted to talk about the constitutional reforms, but we had to put that on pause and talk about the latest iteration of this smear campaign against López Obrador. It's really starting to come together now. We're seeing various outlets joining in on this and... Well, we're here to break it down for you as journalists, as people who have been covering and working in Mexico for many, many years, people who are very familiar with the country, something that I think cannot be said about some of the people writing these articles, to help get to the truth of this. What's actually going on? I mean, it's pretty daunting to see that this has not abated, that what we're seeing published previously that we broke down in our last episode from Populica and Dochevela is continuing. It's the latest iteration, as I said, this time from our friends at the New York Times. Nada mas y nada menos. What a surprise. Who so, would have thought? Who would have thought, exactly. What can we say about the New York Times? Well, I think this image here captures it all. It says, serious journalism, and it's a, uh, the New York Times logo In a clown outfit saying, United States is investigating AMLO's ties to cartels, and then in smaller text, they'd not find any connection. So what is this? This is serious journalism. It's payasadas, as we say in Spanish. It's a joke. But we wanna I think in a way, the best way to summing it up is what was said here by some friends and colleagues of ours at Los Periodistas, sin embargo. Alvaro Delgado, a man I have enormous respect for. He's done incredible investigative work, a very serious journalist. I think his, his opinion is important to take into consideration. What does he have to say about this latest iteration of the smear campaign? The evidence are, come from anonymous sources. And from the get-go, they don't say who the sources are. You should be careful. They want to sustain their peace on testimonies from authorities that admit they could not corroborate And so in journalistic terms, this is very, very weak to publish. And I think that really quite sums it up. It is not something that should have ever made it past the editor. And that tells us something important. If they're publishing something that if the circumstances were different, if it wasn't Mexico, if it wasn't Lopez Obrador, a counter-hegemonic, anti-imperialist leader, they wouldn't be publishing these kinds of stories. What it is, is a smear campaign. But you did an excellent job breaking it down, I'm hoping that together we can walk through this thread that you prepared, exactly pointing out what is wrong with this article. It's not just that it shouldn't have made it past an editor's page, but there's a lot of, I would say, journalistic malpractice going on. So yeah, let's just set this up. This is really act
1: three here uh, that we've been covering since the beginning of this podcast. Um, Act one was the Baker Institute and in it's Mexico report of 2024, alleging with no proof whatsoever that Morena and uh, the cartels could be in collusion in this year's elections, right? Tony Payan, the Texas Observer, et cetera. Act two was the coordinated hit by ProPublica, Deutsche Vela, and Inside Crime which tried to rehash a closed investigation that went nowhere uh, in 2000 for the, regarding the 2006 campaign. Now, just a week later, a couple weeks later, we've got the New York Times coming out with something equally unsubstantiated about the 2018 campaign, right? You know, I, I'm a writer, so and I'm a playwright, so all of these plays have a three-act uh, structure, even farces like these. So now we're in Act 3, right? And they've covered the basis of all of AMLO's presidential runs with an equal lack of substance. So let's go into that. right? As I put here um, at the beginning of my thread, the latest in a series of um, clockwork election-timed hits against AMLO, this time by Alan Foyer and Natalie Kittareff at the New York Times, is the biggest nothing burger yet. And that's really saying something considering the first two nothing burgers. So, you've got like a double extra term. cheese, nothing burger, right? With nothing extra burger, bacon and nothing that. burger.
0: That's and, a nothing And maybe burger. for our bilingual guests, it basically, when we say it's a nothing burger, it's quite literally two halves of bread. There's nothing in between exactly. there, there's no substance. That's what we mean by nothing burger. It's the That's perfect term for this. So, the piece begins with the vaguest of the
1: vague, right? Even from the title, it said, you know, American um, agencies had investigated allegations, this, that, and other thing. And so what it says here at the beginning is, American law enforcement officials, who, spent years looking into allegations set out by U.S. records, which, which U.S. records, and, and this is what Alvaro Delgado points out, three people familiar with the matter. Again, who? Natalie Kittareff's aunt, Alan Foyer's mom, George Tenet. Who are we talking about here? Who are the three people familiar with the matter, right? I've got three friends who consider themselves to be familiar with uh, Mexican politics. We're not necessarily going to invite them on the program, right? Who are people familiar with the matter, right? And this sets the tone for the whole piece. You think, okay, it's just an introductory paragraph. Maybe. They'll get more specific as they go along, but they don't, right? Uh, Next up, they talk about a lot of kind of, pardon the phrase, kind of ass-covering terms like potential links and possible ties, right, without any direct connections. Actually, what it says is, but while the recent efforts by U.S. officials identified possible ties between the cartels, and Mr. López Obrador's associates, they did not find any direct connection between the president himself and criminal organizations. Okay, so we've got records. We've got three unnamed people. We've got possible ties. We've got potential links, right? As if that's not enough of a vague soup, right? Let's get to the next uh, in in the thread, where they really make it even worse. They say, and I think they're aware that the Pro Publica piece was based on the quintessential unreliable witness, who's Roberto Lopez Najara, right, who we explained in detail. We don't have to go into it again. ProPublica really mentioned him all the way to the end of their piece only to try to recuperate his shot reputation because without him, their piece falls apart. So <clears throat> what the Times says next is Much of the information collected by U.S. officials came from informants whose accounts can be difficult to corroborate and sometimes end up being incorrect. The investigators obtained the information while looking into the activities of drug cartels, and it was not clear how much of what the informants told them was independently confirmed. Well, gee, Natalie and Alan, isn't that your job? Isn't that your job to independently confirm these allegations before you print something? Rather than just say that you heard something that was not independently confirmed from sources who have proven to be unreliable by your own reckoning. Isn't it your job then to do that confirmation, to do that legwork, to connect
0: those dots? Apparently not. That's the part that's most grating to me Mm -hmm. is that, you know, journalism is, it's a hard work. It means, you know, there's a term that we use in journalism. It's called shoe leather journalism. And Mm -hmm. it's said that because you have to wear out the leather of your shoes going out there and corroborating the tips that you may get. You don't just go out there and repeat the falsehoods that are being fed to you by interested parties, which is exactly what's going on here. Right? They're riding on the reputation of the times as an outlet that it no longer deserves. We should be clear about that. Uh, you know, I read an interesting thread earlier today about how you know, they used to be called the Lady in Gray and it had a stellar reputation, Watergate, and working with other organizations to expose this or that you know, corruption at high levels in the government, et cetera, et cetera. That reputation is no longer, I think, credible in today's day and age. And so you actually have to, you can't just ride on that. You can't just say, well, I was fed this information. And so now I'm going to reproduce it on the pages of the New York times of taking advantage of that prestige that it still somewhat has in certain circles. Right? In fact, what you did was journalistic malpractice. If this had been any other world leader, you know, other than the ones that are demonized, then you wouldn't have seen this kind of publication actually make it to print. They didn't do their job. Yep.
1: Um, and it's just what you said, they're trying to trade on their um, reputation and their prior uh, prestige to basically just say, believe us. You have to believe us because we're not going to give you anything else. And we're just going to go into a little bit later another article by Natalie uh, to give you just more reason why you shouldn't believe her or them. right? But that's exactly what they're trying to trade off. Believe us because there's nothing there. Let's go on here. Um, the feast of vagueness goes on, right? In this next long paragraph, it talks about records show, right, that the investigators were told by an informant, who, uh, that one of uh, Amlo's confidants met with Ismael Sambada Garcia from the Sinaloa uh, Cartel. Okay, so we've got like two degrees of vagueness records show that investigators were told by the New York Times is famous for abusing the passive voice right as we've seen for example in its recent Palestine coverage but this is kind of (laughs) taking it again to an extreme Uh, the next paragraph uh, a different source told them that after uh, the election um, two of uh, AMLO's allies who were they actually in the campaign who you know what does that mean? What does allies mean? Uh received money from the from the Zetas, right? Or offered money from the Zetas. Then it says investigators obtained information from a third source. This maybe was Natalie's aunt, or what we don't know. Um, suggesting that the cartels were in possession of videos, and I'm gonna to get to this in a minute, of the president's sons picking up drug money. And then it gets to the to the end point, it's saying U.S. law enforcement officers also independently tracked payments from people they believed to be cartel operatives. What? <laughs> it's like They didn't even do the basic job of confirming that they were cartel operatives? That blows the whole thing up. Right there? They believed to be cartel operatives? You've got to do that before you do anything else. Because nothing else in the chain works if you haven't established that the people you believe to be cartel operatives actually
0: are. I mean, this isn't a mom-and-pop operation. This is the U.S. government, nearly limitless resources at this disposal. If they wanted to figure it out, if they were actual cartel operatives, they would assign the people necessary to figure that out and confirm it before proceeding. Which also brings us to the point they didn't proceed for a reason. There's a reason why this investigation got frozen at this stage, because there's nothing there. So let's continue. <clears throat> then
1: comes the, um, the sleazy insinuation, which was included in Kittareff's uh, letter to AMLO, you know, which we should mention. Um, Kittareff sent a letter to uh, AMLO's spokesperson, Jesus Ramirez, the classic kind of gun to your head. Um, answer us by 5 o'clock or else. Mr. President, which just shows this overweening arrogance of US legacy media, right? We're giving you you 12 hours, and we want an answer. Because if you don't, we got stuff on your kids, right? So fork over the information that they don't have, that they don't have, trying to see if AMLA will complete the investigation for them by panicking, oh no, it's the New York Times, and maybe slipping and giving them something that they could then use. Right? You got until 5 o'clock, Mr. President. That's the way that went down. They
0: right. should have watched that interview he did with Ina, because he does not have a high opinion of the New York Times. They would have quickly found out that those kind of mafia-like threats don't work on López Obrador. So the sleazy insinuation <clears throat>
1: is that AMLO traveled to Sinaloa in 2020 for the express purpose of meeting El Chapo's mother. He was there to inaugurate um, an infrastructure project. El Chapo's mother was there. He shook her hand. <clears throat> and this has become a right-wing talking point ever since then. Um, very sleazily, they pick up on that to try to suggest in the letter that AMLO went there precisely for that person, a, kind of a, an attempt to create a guilt-by-association uh, situation. In the text, though, they're more careful because they know there's nothing there either. So at least one of these payments, they said, was made around the same time, around, uh, that Mr. López Obrador traveled to the state of Sinaloa in 2020 and met the mother of the drug lord, El Chapo, right? They didn't say traveled to meet, like she said in the letter, basically. She said traveled and met, right? Right? Kind of more very careful language there um to try to dance away from an assertion that they know they can't back up
0: right one point uh, on that, that which i think yes really stresses the fact that they are woefully disconnected from the way that mexicans think and understand that scene for example mm-hmm. right the right wing has loved to bring it up as if it's the, the smoking gun, that the proof that there's ties, right? Because he went to go say hello to El Chapo's mother. But people in Mexico know that under Felipe Calderon, his security chief, his right-hand man when it comes to his defining policy as president, Genaro Garcia Luna, was guilty of collaborating with organized crime groups. So this a notion that they're trying to sell which may work abroad but it does not work inside Mexico, that Lopez Obrador and his government represents the ties between politics and organized crime is an insult when we live through Felipe Calderon's presidency, which was stained with narco trafficking dollars flowing into the hands of Calderon's security chief. It, it is an affront to the Mexican population to suggest that now and not before is when there is collusion between the government and organized crime. And only someone who moves in the circles of Roma Condesa, instead of where I live, or Iztapalapa, which they love to smear, or Gustavo Amadero, or any of the rural communities in this country that are affected by violence, they would never believe them when they talk about this. They would say, well, actually, organized crime had infiltrated the government, yes. But it wasn't López Obrador, it was Felipe Calderón. And it's
1: funny that none of this context makes it into any of these pieces. Not the Baker Institute report, not ProPublica, not Deutsche Welle insight crime, and not the New York Times report of yesterday. Um, and that literally is it. The rest of the article is all speculation, a rehash of the Sanfuegos case, Um General Cienfuegos, who was released by the United States, former defense secretary, and an attempt to give some weight to the nothing burger by suggesting there is something there, really. But the U.S. declined to pursue it for diplomatic considerations, which is the same spin that the ProPublica editor Steve Engelberg tried to put on it after there was a lot of pushback on Tim Golden's piece. He came out with his own and said, "Well, well, there really was, there really was incriminating evidence. There really was, but." You know, for diplomatic reasons, they decided to let it die. Now, next, and this for me is, talk about journalistic malpractice. In a piece swimming in maybes and we don't know for sure's, the allegation about the president's sons is particularly irresponsible, right? She says in the piece, they say in the piece, Investigators obtained information from a third source suggesting that drug, suggesting, suggesting. I also suggest that the Yankees are going to win, you know, ought to make a trade so they win the World Series this year. Probably not. That's not journalism. Um, That drug cartels were in possession of videos of the president's sons picking up drug money records show. They suggest it. And that's enough to go on. That's enough to go on. Uh, as I say in the next uh, tweet, reporters have every right to protect their sources. Nobody's saying they don't. But confidential sources need to lead to something concrete, like the videos themselves, for example. Have Kitcheriff and Foyer actually seen the video? videos? Maybe. We don't know. Do the videos exist? Or is it just gossip hour based on carefully timed leaks from U.S. intelligence agencies? And as the president said today in his morning press conference, you can like or dislike AMLO, right? Who is going to um, clear the reputation of my sons because of that article? Now, every time they do a Google search, the Google search is going to come up. AMLO's sons took uh, money directly from Narco, based on a suggestion of a third unnamed source. That's going to stick with them forever, right? Long after Natalie's gone off to some first world com- country, right, to be the correspondent there, long after she's written her biography of how she survived Mexico as a correspondent. Right, which probably won some kind of award, right? <gasps> that plucky young lady who survived Mexico from you know, a rich body of Mexico City. Um, long after Alan Foyer's moved on to other topics, the insinuation
0: about AMLO, these repeated insinuations, and his sons, stick. Not to mention, it's a page right out of the right-wing playbook because going after his sons is what they've been doing, including his underage son, it's what they've been doing since day one, since he took office, right? Again, is, these are the circles you're moving with. These are the people that you're associating with, you're with, and they are bottom of the barrel, right? Going after people who aren't even directly involved, right? They're acting like López Obrador's sons have posts in the government when they don't, right? They are individual private citizens, the minor in particular. He had to leave Mexico because of the, the harassment he was enduring at the hands of the press. Just more of the same.
1: Yeah. I mean, they even went to Houston where his son was renting a house and, you know, outed him there. The current presidential candidate, Xochitl Galvez, went and outed him there and stood in front of his rented house in Houston. Made a whole, made a whole scene there, right? Um, the Times piece is simply the latest in a series of election season hits. A few weeks ago, as I, told, as I mentioned, right, the Baker Institute came out with a report, alleged without proof, that Morena and the cartels could be in cahoots in this election. And then it was Pro Publica's turn. And that's where um, the, the thread ends, right? Um, and it's funny that uh, Steven Engelberg admits that the DEA read their homework when this is, as we know, a long standing New York Times tradition of having any piece that relates to national security or foreign affairs, or many of them, passed through the eyes of government officials. Right? We know that there's times when, for example, Tenet or Condoleezza Rice put the kibosh in an article. Right? The DEA was all over the pro publica piece, by their own admission. And this just stinks of, uh, of DEA leaks and whatever else. And you know, why do they allow themselves to be used in such a grubby fashion? Why? Is it their vendetta I mean, against AMLO? Is it their yeah. just utter disdain for Mexico? Why just why set yourself up as tools for American intelligence at the
0: cost of your reputation and at the cost of the reputation of the? Publications in question. Why are they doing this? Why is the New York Times joining joining in on this one? I think they're Johnny-come-latelys They felt like somebody else got ahead of this and they wanted to be the ones to do it and So they had to get their own story. Oh, no, no We have something on the 2018 campaign not the 20, 2006 campaign, which was you know many many years ago uh, But I think the other thing is there is very much an effort amongst elite circles inside the United States despite all the platitudes that are expressed by Biden and by Lopez Obrador about the positive relationship, who are very unhappy with Lopez Obrador, for reasons that we've explained in other episodes. He's a, he's a, his government defends national sovereignty. He has strengthened the state oil company, which, you know, US capital is desperate to sink its teeth into and try to suck the blood out of this country. You know, he's put limits on the activities of the DEA, right? He's stood up for the expropriation of lithium as a key resource to be hands in the state. This kind of stuff upsets people in the elite circles. And they know that it can't be limited just to the right-wing circles, but try to win over that mushy middle, those liberals who want to also benefit from the continued exploitation, the super exploitation of this country. And I saw a response that I think really quite captures exactly the strategy. So Falco Ernst used to be a a journalist, used to cover Latin America. Now he works for the crisis group. Uh, We can get into a little bit of who the crisis group is, but, you know, it'd be interesting to see into his funding. But he says this. In response to this story in the New York Times, in what's becoming a key issue in Mexico's June elections, AMLO is lashing out against the New York Times before publication of a new allegation of collusion with organized crime in his 2018 campaign. AMLO has declared eradicating Corruption Central to his tenure, and he says he's done so successfully. So a couple of things here. One, Falco spoke before he read the article, clearly responding to the press conference where López Obrador shared that mafia-like letter that he received, that his office received. But I think the, thing, the takeaway for me is the fact that he says this, a key issue in June's elections. And I you know, responded to this and I asked, for who? Mexico is becoming polarized, he says, in a separate tweet. Really? Because from my view, Gladys Scharnbaum has an overwhelming lead. So I think this is exactly the aim of this narco-financing, yeah. DEED-fed stories. They're trying to make it into a key issue. They know it won't be a key issue in this country. I don't think it's actually, like I, like I say here in this tweet, are voters shifting as a result of this campaign? It's been weeks of this, and the poll numbers haven't moved. But it does undermine faith in the vote. It goes back to Sochi Galvez's jaunt to the United States and Spain, where she went to go talk about how it's a tilted election, about how the cards are stacked against her, but critically also said organized crime is becoming involved in the election. So now this is becoming the narrative and people like Falco who works for the crisis group, another NGO tied to another think tank tied to big money, to capital interest, says that it's a key issue. They're trying to set the stage so that in the future, they, when they try to undermine the result of the election, they will say, well, we tried to warn you. you know, the, the only reason Claudia Scheinbaum won wasn't because her, her, you know, she's inheriting the popularity of Lopez Obrador or she represents the political program that most people genuinely support that has been confirmed in poll after poll. No, it's because of organized crime. And therefore, we have to weaken her presidency, undermine her mandate. Possibly down the road apply sanctions. This is the story of Latin America. This is the story of counter governments. I mentioned at the beginning, I write for Venezuela analysis. I've been covering this, precisely this kind of slander, for 20 years. I know what I'm talking about when it comes to this. This is what they do for, so that down the road they can say, you do not have legitimacy. We're going to punish you by whatever means we have at our disposal in order to undermine your project lest other people get some ideas about what it's like to actually take the reins of your economy, take the reins of the political structure, and actually try to deliver results for the vast majority of the population.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. <clears throat> um, it's a long-term strategy designed to slowly undermine the legitimacy of uh, of this movement. right? And even if they Aren't successful in overturning, you know, the election this time. What they will do is um, create more division, create more polarization, and kind of fuel the fire of that vociferous minority that we saw on the Sunday march. You know, maybe 25 percent of the country that um, hate Lopez, right? They say Lopez because that, uh, for them, is the lower class name, right? His name is just Lopez, right? With a passion, with a virulence, um, and right in a moment when you know Claudia Scheinbaum is building bridges to certain groups who felt that they didn't have you know um, a, a place in this first in this first term, like academic groups like you know feminist groups and others, this just fuels this idea that there can be no negation, no negotiation, there can be no, 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 we can't. Uh, have anything to do with this narco government. So long after you know, as I said, Natalie's moved on. Um, long after Alan's moved to other other pieces, right? Or Tim Golden, right? Or any of these people, the damage they've done in Mexican society will remain, and that's exactly the point, right? It's to make it that much more difficult for Scheinbaum to govern. Right? Exactly. And to create a kind of a a slow motion balkanization of this country, right, where you get a rump right wing, right, that if they can't get their, you know, restoration of the old ancien regime, right, if they can't get that, they can at least have the pretext to, down the road,
0: uh, no longer recognize Mexican institutionality. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you, you, you mentioned Natalie by name, and I think it's important. It's not necessarily the individuals involved, although they do have individual culpability in this. But let's take a look at the way that these media elites kind of make sure they protect each other, because they understand that, that their role is a very specific one. I thought it was very interesting to see Elisir Budasoff's response to this situation. He is the host and editor of Elilo Podcast. Um, it works with radio ambulante, which is kind of uh, you know it 's basically this American life, but in Spanish. you know they do some good reports, but you know um, i wouldn 't say that they are an exemplary example of uh, what journalism in the, in the region should look like, but nonetheless he 's a credible journalist, but interesting his response he says i want to quote his uh, his tweak here in Spanish but translate for you. those who talk about the text from the New York Times as if it 's part of a coordinated plan are totally cynical, or they don't have the least damned idea how the best journalism is done by real people with their own criteria who look to narrate real things that happened. My solidarity with Natalie, who is impeccable. And what I responded to him was that, beyond your personal opinion of your friend, for journalists with experience in this topic, like myself, who understand that US intelligence agencies interfere through via journalism, we have seen it many times, it is not irrational to think that Natalie was was a victim of their game. Now, whether or not she was conscious or not of the role that she's playing in this grand charade, she very much is falling victim to a very specific agenda that in my opinion is being led by the DEA. And his response is interesting as well. He says, the only thing I'm saying is that the job of a foreign correspondent is to cover items that form part of the public agenda in a country where they are and more so if it involves the country where they from the media outlet where they work and that can be done in an honest way nothing else but here's the thing right he said so himself con criterio propio with your own criteria natalie's criteria in this case was not up to snuff she was clearly wrong but maybe it goes beyond that because if we look at her work previously in Mexico, we'll find this article. Do you, I don't know if people remember it. it this is from 2022. July 5th, 2022, so a couple of years ago. Like the Pro article, what does the headline do? Well, it hedges its bets, right? It doesn't have enough to say it outright, because if they did, they would. They say, Has Biden's top diplomat in Mexico gone too far? Officials ask, question mark. And then the deck reads administration officials fear that the US ambassador's cozy relationship with the Mexican president has backfired and may be setting back American interests in the region. Incredible. A US ambassador is setting back American interests in the region for what exactly? We can get into that for a second, but I just want to point this out. This article is written by Natalie and Maria Abi Habib when Maria was the bureau chief for Mexico and Latin America in Mexico. She moved on, and Natalie was rewarded for her work in the region, becoming the bureau chief for the New York Times for Mexico and Central America. So that's pretty telling. So you write this article, which I'd love to break it down real quick, because we're running long on time here, but essentially commits all of those sins that we just talked about in the last piece, and she was rewarded for it. So which makes me think that I think she does know exactly what she's doing, that I don't think mm-hmm. it's just an honest mistake or, ah, the DEA gave me this information and I didn't do a good enough job of actually corroborating it, but is actually responding to an agenda. And I think it's really quite tragic, right, because it undermines our work. You know, in response to the López Obrador's criticism of this piece and the mafia-like letter, you know, they criticize his tactics, saying, you know, in a time when journalists are facing ever more repression and danger, right? Like that's offensive to me, right? Like people like Natalie who move around in secure vehicles and live in high-end neighborhoods in this city are not not nearly in the same situation as other journalists who are out here actually, you know, risking their necks to do this kind of work, right? And they try to say that we are the same. We are not the same. I would never publish a piece like this with such little credibility. Right. Mm-hmm. But she did it once. She was rewarded by becoming the bureau chief, and she did it again.
1: I actually did a, th- a thread on this that we can go through very quickly to point out just some of the stuff that um, um, that came, you know that, that just, just shows the way uh, Natalie Kittereff rolls in her pieces on Mexico, right? So, as I say here, um, let's just start with the adjectives. <laughs> They're, they're always, you know, adjectives are the ones that will give you away in journalism, right? Which is why good editors are always trying to suppress adjectives, right? Um, according to Kittaref and Abi Habib, AMLO is uh, mercurial, right? Preserving Mexico's cooperation, administration officials said, means avoiding conflict with a mercurial Mexican leader. This is a news piece. It's not an opinion piece. Why is AMLO mercurial? Because you two say so? Mercurial means somebody who changes around, right? Like Mercury, right? goes back to mythology. If anything, Amlo has had the exact same message his entire career, right? Anybody who's followed Amlo knows he's been talking about the exact same issues for 40 years, like it or not. Where does Mercurial come in? I'm just curious. And, you know, how do these adjectives slip through? It's actually, it's good they did because it shows the kind of bias they have Against Amlo, right? A kind of a bias, this kind of dripping condescension, which is so characteristic of the times uh, in general. Uh, let's go on to the next one. Um, in the next uh, part, talking about condescension, right? Um, they discuss how U.S. ambassadors have to walk a fine line in strategically important countries governed by volatile leaders. Strategically important countries governed by volatile leaders, right? So now AMLO is both mercurial and volatile, right? No evidence, no to support, just this kind of adjectivization run amok, right? What does that mean, that he's volatile, right? So As I said there, this isn't journalism. This is just schoolyard name-calling with a pedigree, right? The kind of things that other elite journalists will call impeccable, Right? Could you get away with a piece calling someone just you know Mercurio Volatile whatever you want? No good editor would let that through. The next part is deliciously candid. Amlo's energy agenda threatens American companies, right? Well, yes, because he's the president of Mexico, right? This country, uh, and his energy reforms. is this to understand? are placing the national interest ahead of the interest of corporate America, right? What they say is the Mexican leaders pursued an energy agenda that threatens American countries, companies. Well, that really lets the cat out of the bag, doesn't it? Right? Hence, we're going to have to go after Ambassador Salazar. Next paragraph, with increasing hysteria, the authors insist that Mexico's economy is cratering. Now, this is the This is the worst. This is the worst. The worst in yesterday's article was going after AMLO's sons with these fictitious videos. This is the worst example of journalistic malpractice in this piece, right? It says the economy is cratering, violence continues to rage, and Mexico has become the biggest source of migrants arriving at the U.S. border. A 10-second Google search would have shown that Mexico's economy grew two point two something percent in 2022 and 3% in 2023. It was actually last year. It was I think sixth among uh, G20 countries in um, in economic growth. Grew more than the U.S. Grew much
0: more than the U.K. You know, whatever. What but do you that doesn't think, fit the narrative, a- right? These right? leftist countries have to be basket case economies, right? That's that's their narrative. It can't actually be a successful model, you know. And if it is successful, well, then we're going to apply sanctions and destroy your economy.
1: Exactly right. To, to kind of <laughs> make our prediction come true, right? But let's just think about this for a moment. It's not just a question of bias and condescension and adjectives run amuck. They just lie.
0: Yeah.
1: They just lie. How can you with a straight face say that a, comp- that a country's economy is cratering when it's growing by 2 3%? it's just a lie and i called maria abi habib out on that at the moment at that moment and she she responded saying well you know uh, it basically it could go into recession right people saying the us economy is strong but it could go into the recession in the future we're like we're not talking about the future we're talking about your assertion that the economy is not only declining cratering they cratering they said cratering to me is like you know, 5 to 10% minus. Where do they get off lying like that? And where's the edit- where are the editors? Where are the editors of the Great Lady? Where are the editors of this impeccable publication? It just
0: drives one mad, right? And um, the funny thing about this piece is that the whole concept of it was that Salazar was misbehaving By looking into these allegations, the Mexicanos contra la Corrupción, the group founded by Claudia X. Gonzalez, the man behind the pre forced marriage, the, the, the opposition coalition of the PRI, the PAN, and the PRD, was engaging in political behaviors while also receiving funding from USAID, which even USAID is careful to not do so explicitly. Right, USAID says, no, we fund uh, initiatives against corruption and civil society and media and all this kind of stuff. We all know what they're actually doing, but they're careful to not be so obvious about it. The truth is, who held the meeting that actually led to the forced marriage of the PRI and the PAN? It was Claudia X. Gonzalez in his mm-hmm. mansion in Lomas de Chapultepec while he was the head of Mexicanos Contra la Corrupción. He didn't step down until later, and in came Maria Amparo Casar. So the whole thing is based on anonymous sources that anybody who has an idea of what's happening in this country can pretty much figure out. Her sources were Lorenzo Cordoba, former head of the INE, and Maria Amparo Casar as well. Who
1: herself right now is embroiled in a corruption scandal for attempting to falsify official documents to uh, cash in on a life insurance policy and a, a lifetime pension from Pemex, right? The USAID-funded anti-corruption agency
0: has a corruption problem <laughs> that they might wanna investigate. Well, now, now that we're on the topic, I think we can, we can move <laughs> on. I wanna talk about, actually, precisely this demonstration that happened very recently here in Mexico which was very much led, organized by this group, by Mexicanos contra la Corrupción and other astroturf groups. It's a term that I find very, very useful. It's very difficult to, uh, to translate. But you know, mm-hmm. we talk about grassroots mobilization and grassroots organization, which is basically citizens, individuals coming together. Now, astroturf groups are these groups that give the appearance they come from the civil society, that they come from below, but are actually funded by very wealthy donors from the top. You know, we heard a lot of this term, particularly around the Tea Party and all that kind of stuff in the US, but that is what's happening here in Mexico. The organizations that called for this demonstration to quote, unquote, protect democracy, kind of repeating that mantra that was effective for them about a year ago, to demonstrate in the streets to to protect Mexican democracy was organized by groups like Mexicanos Contra La Corrupción, organized by these fake civil society groups. Mm -hmm. But what was really at play here. What was this demonstration that we just saw happen very recently over the weekend? What was it about?
1: Well, first of all, this would be the pink insertion in the world color revolution, right? (laughs) And U.S. sponsored color revolutions. This is the pink edition, right? This was very clearly an attempt to evade uh, campaign laws, right? Mexico is right now what's in what's called the inter-campaign phase, where you can't have partisan Rallies, right? Not until March 1st, which we will be covering, the kickoff of the official campaign, um, you know, sanctioned campaign season leading up to the June election, right? Um, the speaker at this, at this rally, right, uh, was Lorenzo Cordova, the former head of the Electoral Institute, who <laughs> knows more than anybody the electoral rules of not being able to hold rallies in the inter campaign phase. So they tried to play this off as not being a partisan rally, right? So you didn't see any signs of the PRI. You didn't see any signs from the PAN. You saw some other kinds of signs, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, You didn't see any signs from the PID, right? It, It was all cloaked in this idea of, we are concerned citizens, and we are coming out to manifest our concerns about Mexican democracy, right? And this authoritarian government, right? This is what was rolling here. But from you could see from what we'll see in a minute,
0: uh, it was an opposition rally in all but name. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the fact that they're trying to use this issue to try to mask their partisan efforts, I think, is pretty easily revealed. So I wrote an article a number of months ago for The Nation kind of analyzing the last time they tried this. And what mm-hmm. I basically argue is that these are what I call conservative strongholds. So they have these spaces where they continue to wield influence, despite the fact that they don't no longer have the government in their hands. And then they also turn to these kinds of issues. Before, a number of years ago, it was pretending to be feminist and joining the feminist mobilizations on the street. But in this one, it's to try to play into this narrative that you know there's an authoritarian backslide happening in this country, and therefore uh, you know, it, it, there has to be resistance on the streets to it and all this kind of stuff. It's just a rehash of that because they know if they have a partisan rally, they don't actually get a very good turnout. But they know if they cling on to these issues, if they try to pretend like they are the protectors of, of democracy, then maybe they'll fill the Zócalo, right? They'll actually get people to turn out. They'll, they'll get some people who are clearly there for partisan interest, but they'll also get people there who I think sincerely believe that it's necessary to protect Mexico's institutions from López Obrador because he's been the, you know so demonized in media and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, but the other thing I would say when it, when it comes to this is that it's, if you read some of the coverage, they will say, well, demonstrators were mobilizing against López Obrador's latest attempt to reform the National Electoral Institute. This demonstration was announced way before López Obrador introduced his proposals for constitutional reforms. So it's a bit of uh, revisionist history there, trying to make it seem like it's a response, when the truth is, like you said, this was always about actually selling this idea that this is a nonpartisan event, but is actually clearly an effort to shore up support for Xochitl Galvez ahead of the election. Which is funny, because there's this independent se- senator, uh, Emilio Alvarez y Casa, who lost his marbles. Because in his neighborhood, his wealthy neighborhood, by the way, he saw a banner that explicitly tied the rally on that day to Xochitl Galvez. And he just went off with no basis whatsoever, as is the tends to be a pattern when we're talking about these things, that It was clearly a a montaje, it was a setup by Morena to make it seem like this was a partisan activity. We don't really know. But the fact that he lost his marbles over it, I think tells us just how afraid they were of the truth becoming evident in that sense, that this was nothing, this is not about democracy. This is an anti-Lopez Obrador demonstration. And now, let me share with you some of the images from that demonstration. Just what were people talking about? Kurt? So here's one of them, right? Um, <clears throat> the
1: organizers of this partisan, nonpartisan uh, rally. And, you know, let's also point out that when Sochil Galvez uh, went to the Electoral Institute to uh, become the official candidate from this coalition, she echoed this idea of basically democracy uh, being under threats, and uh, violence, and maybe the election would have to be canceled, right? This is, this is the whole thing, right? It ties in together, with together of narco government, it ties in with this idea of uh, authoritarian regime, democracy under threat, violence out of control, and so we may just, sorry folks, but we may just have to, we may just have to you know, put those elections in the bag, so the organizers of uh, the rally were very careful to try to ensure that the people who went didn't talk to the press. <laughs> well aware of the fact that anytime time they do, right, the people who go to these types of rallies, median age, about 60, um, come out with the most barbaric, racist, and classic 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 classist uh, comments. It's like they can't help themselves. So they tried to do their best to gag everybody to make sure that that stuff didn't come out, like in other rallies with the idea of Indian and pata, rajada, todo eso. Well, they weren't entirely successful. Here's one sign we saw uh, in the crowd, right, which says, uh, it's not the fault uh, of the Indian... (laughs) It's not the fault of the Indian, but of those who made him president. Now, this is a play on an old Mexican phrase, an old, very racist Mexican phrase that goes way back, right? That it's not the fault of the Indian, but the one who made him his compadre, right? Basically, the idea is if you get fooled by the Indian, well, that's your fault. You made him the compadre. Right. So the idea is that Indians, I mean they're still, they're still using the term Indian in 2024, um, that the Indian is not to be trusted. But if you allow him into your life, if you make him your compadre, well then that's your fault for being naive or dumb or stupid or gullible. So they take a phrase which is already highly historically questionable and they make it all the worse by saying it's not the fault of the Indian, but of those who made him president. That is, the worst insult they could think of is to call Lopez Obrador an Indian. That, <laughs> that, tells, you, that tells you legions. That tells you legions about the, the medieval mindset of the people who attended this rally and who all the US journalists from elite publications, wittingly or unwittingly, are supporting and giving ammunition to this renegade racist rump of people who want to restore the ancien regime where the use of the term Indian
0: in their circles was totally normal. While at the same time, this is the paradox, while at the same time, Loving to praise Sochi Galvez because of her humble origins, the son of an Ot- Otomi father and a Mestiza mother, who herself, when she went to go register, said, I'm proud to be an indigenous woman. So which is it? Do you back the indigenous candidate or do you hate the Indian president? Right. It's like the two button you know, ma'am,
1: right? Which <laughs> with the sweat, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's the weaponizing of, the, uh, uh, of an indigenous discourse. Now, you could say, well, it's just one sign. You could always find, you know, a bad sign at any rally, except for the fact that this is simply par for the course, and it has been seen over and over and over again at all of these types of uh, conservative rallies. And here's another example right now.
0: Yeah. So this is uh, Hernan Gomez. He's an independent journalist. He's worked for a number of, of outlets, but he loves to go to these demonstrations and, and not in an aggressive way whatsoever. Uh, go and ask people like, why are you here? What's, you know, what's your motivation? But he also wrote a book around, you know, colorism and racism in Mexico. And so on this occasion, he goes out and he asks people. Why, you know, why is it that more fair-skinned people tend to be overrepresented at these opposition or pro-democracy, quote-unquote, rallies? And the answer he receives, without any kind of shame on behalf of the respondent, is, well, the reason there's more fair-skinned or white people is because, quote, we have better education and we know what's good. You know, the others have the possibility, the potential to educate themselves. But, you know, unsaid is that, but they don't. That is reality. This is the attitude of some of the people who attend these demonstrations. But it's one thing to also focus on, you know, Maria X Juan Ye, who attend these demonstrations. I remember the other one where there was that woman who was really, really unhinged, yelling, yeah. that Indian from Macuspana, right? You know, fine. But
1: Lopa Sabalor does... is from the town of Macuspana, Macuspana, just
0: to give that context, right? Exactly. But what do the so-called liberal, social democratic even, Ah. academics who very much inform the opposition, they're the people whispering in their ears, what do they have to say about this? With all that good
1: education, with all that good schooling.
0: This was Jose Antonio Crespo, for a long time he was seen as a very serious commentator, you know, he was often quoted in the pages of mainstream media, giving his analysis. I mean, he's kind of going the route of of Vicente Fox now, where he's just letting his hate override everything. His answer to this question that Hernán Gómez Brúera asks about why are there more white or fair-skinned people at this demonstration is this. For historic reasons, the criollos and those close to them have always had more access to information and education, and that turns into more politicization. This has not been overcome. Reading history helps. Incredible.
1: I love the snide I love the snide ending of reading history helps. <laughs> he
0: has not deleted um, it. It's still up. It's incredible. Yeah, it's still
1: up. <laughs> it's still up. <laughs> yeah. He sees no reason to delete it. Do um, first of all, creoles creoles are are people of uh of European heritage born in Mexico. That's, you know, that's a phrase that goes back to um the colonial era which is still uh, which is still in use, right? Um my comment is, is is very much this that in my experience in mexico and in the world it's very much the opposite it's very much the opposite um it's people with all the schooling and all the degrees and i'm not you know knocking getting higher degrees and whatever else they can be very useful but i think in in, in general that often leads to a more conformist mindset it just does i mean you know. Chomsky and others have written legions about how American academia is actually, for all of its liberal reputation, um, the most conformist when it comes to, you know, the key issues, right? Um, and we can see American academia act- acting right now, right, in uh, in, in, in terms of, of Palestine and others, right? Um, in, my, in my experience in Mexico, it's the exact opposite. It's the people with more schooling who are more conformist, uh, more conservative, and, and, and more willing to swallow a government line, uh, and especially more willing to swallow the line of impeccable – impeccable, I'm putting it in air quotes for people who are listening um, – publications like the New York Times because it's a class thing. You have to believe what the New York Times says because it's simply a class stamp. So – it. You know, and you can see the whole history of the movement from Zapatismo in the south to the Cuatro T in you know nationally, that it has not been by any means the people with most schooling in Mexico who have been more most politicized. They've been the most ap- apathetic, and the most willing to turn a blind eye to decades upon decades, you know, centuries really, of egregious corruption, violence, um, you know. Um, terrible governance, right and a class's discourse which is bolstered by this idea that more schooling makes you more magically more politicized
0: well let's let's take a look. Let's look at uh, some of these highly educated, politicized uh, actors here, and what is their behavior when it comes <laughs> To their participation in these demonstrations. Now we're going to play this clip. Um, it'll be in Spanish. We'll help explain it as afterwards, but I think it's worth seeing, unedited, the way that people behave at these yes, so-called pro-democracy demonstrations. <laughs> so i'm going to stop it there but for those of us uh, who are maybe just listening and, and didn't actually get a chance to see this on their screens what we saw was two white, fair-skinned women, in an interview with Hernan Gomez, basically fighting amongst themselves because he asked one of them, hey, so I imagine everybody here uh, supports Xochitl Galvez. And they had received via social media, on WhatsApp channels and Telegram and all the rest, not to talk to the press and not to mention their support for Xochitl Galvez. So when he's asking this question and she's about to answer, another woman jumps in and shoves a paper in front of her face physically intervening to keep her from answering, right? And he's kind of taken back by this and they start to you know, cause a commotion as you could clearly hear, uh, suggesting that no, 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 none of us are here for partisan reasons, right? But that's pretty telling from my point of view in terms of what are the attitudes of this so-called privileged, educated, white elite in this country. I mean, they can't even behave themselves in front of a camera. <laughs>
1: And I think to kind of round out this whole topic, that this really leads us to understand the degree of anger and resentment that a piece like the New York Times from yesterday provokes in people, right? They'll just try to play this off as, oh, it's just, they're just partisans and they don't like the truth and whatever else. What people, what rankles people, what is roiling to people is New York Times, ProPublica, etc. intervening on the side of these people, right? We talked last week about Denise Dresser's horrendous tweet about living in Extapalapa is a punishment, right? Mm-hmm. That all Morena members should be punished by having to go live in Extapalapa. These aren't just isolated one-off instances. We saw the sign. We saw this comment. We've seen comments on others. You know, we deal with this stuff every day covering journalism in Mexico, right? It is, there's rampant racism and classism in the Mexican right wing. People who, are, you know, suf- who have suffered through decades of violence, very low salaries, insecurity, um, who have suffered the brunt of the so-called drug war sponsored by the US. Uh, all of the devaluations, all of the shocks, right? You want to talk about the shock doctrine. Mexico's been about through four major shocks since the 80s that they've had to weather, two major devaluations, the drug war, right, and the mask. This is what the Mexican public has had to weather. Only for Natalie Kittreff and Alan Foyer, right, and Tim Golden to come down and on the basis of nothing prop up prop up these kinds of people. Mexican Mexican public is not dumb, it's offensive. Um, Natalie Kittrow suggested in another piece that when that, we talked about, so I don't have to cover it again, and that massive pro-AMLO rally a couple of years ago insinuated that people were there because they received social programs, right? Like our friend from NPR. Cutting checks. Um, Come and live in Mexico and go through two devaluations, come go through a drug war. Um, You you live through all that. And build a peaceful uh, movement that has finally, after several electoral frauds, taken peacefully the reins of power and has governed very well. Only to have this privileged cast of journalists shit on you and defend this racist rump of people. And you can understand the degree of anger that exists against the New York Times. And it's not just an uninformed rabble out with their pitchforks that don't want to hear the truth. Actually, they know what the truth is, and they're sick of the smoke and mirrors, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And such um, you know, a naked succession of pieces. That's what causes the anger. And that's what these people don't see.
0: And they don't want to see. And they're paid not to see. And they're doing it to shore up this candidate, right? I think they, too, can read the polls. They know that Claudia Scheinbaum is polling upwards of 64 65% to Sochi Galvez, 20 25%, maybe 30% in the best of days. And so I think that's part of the narrative. And I want to close our episode on this. We're past the one-hour mark, so we're going to have one last segment here to talk about what are these efforts to try to shore up her campaign in the face of overwhelming unpopularity and like I'm not trying to criticize her because she 's right wing she's a bad candidate. she commits gaffe after gaffe. I mentioned this in another episode. you know Claudiaquis Gonzalez imposed this candidate on the opposition saying this was our ticket to victory she's got the popular touch and she's going to be able to win, but she's just not a good candidate. We have a whole episode about all the gaffes she committed while abroad. But look, this was the latest one. So this was her moment to shine. She was going to go register officially as the candidate of the opposition at the National Electoral Institute, a necessary step. And you know what the headline was? Xochitl Galvez caught on camera taking gum out of her mouth and sticking into the chair like some kind of schoolyard child. Like, are you for real? Like, how do you not... And then she tried to go say, no, it wasn't gum. It was actually a, a mint for my throat so that I could speak clearly, right? There's another scene from that day where she's finally handed over the ACTA, the actual official document that has her name, that has her registered as a candidate, and she starts jumping up and down, and we have this phrase in Spanish, penajena, causa penajena, uh, secondary or secondhand embarrassment. You can see the head of the institute get visibly uncomfortable and kind of scooch away. This is not a candidate who's going to win. These kinds of payasadas, these kind of absurd behavior, is not going to help you when it comes to your polling numbers. So what does that bring us to? Well, the following. That they have to engage in this kind of unscrupulous, undemocratic, illegal behavior to try to inflate her presence in the spaces Bringing where the are. bots, it's the bot army, it's the troll center. Now, maybe uh, you can kind of get into details a little bit. We're, we're short on time, so we'll have to do this kind of quickly. But what happened here? How did we all knew that Sochi Galvez, her campaign, and the opposition in its various iterations was using bot armies and troll centers to inflate their hashtags? But then they got caught. What happened? <laughs>
1: They got caught red-handed. so we've talked about Act One, Act two, Act three, right Baker Institute, uh, ProPublica, uh, New York Times. Well, the articles themselves are not enough. What you need is a massive promotion of this uh, of this material online. So you call in the bots, right? The troll farms, the bot armies, right, and um, you know, the big actors outside of the country where they can in theory be um, outside of campaign finance laws and such, so we saw you know 10 million tweets about uh, this whole idea of amlo no narco president narco Claudia and whatever else, which really gives the lie to this idea of we're just doing independent journalism, really. <laughs> so if you're just doing independent journalism from ProPublica, how does your piece get magically and immediately linked to this massive bot army? Was that just a coincidence? So as uh, Julian Macias, Tovar, who's a, who's a really good analyst of um, uh, online uh, movements and such, uh, found something very indicative. Um, and as an editor and as you know a copy editor, I really love this part. Uh, they were found out because in the hashtags they made, they didn't check their spelling. They didn't check their spelling. So instead of narco presidente, they put narco president. And so Julian was very easily able to track where these massive, you know, tweet blasts had come from, right? And there was a couple of other spelling errors in there as well, right? Uh, narco president was the one I, you know, um, I see on there, right? But I think there was there was a... What um, about Sochi? They, they misspelled. Ah, oh, right. They, they, right. Sochi is T L at the end, and they put L T, right? Yeah.
0: And he, I mean, people can can look it up themselves. Um, you know, we've linked to it, but you know, he gets he does a very extensive thread, breaking it down, basically irrefutable. It is very this this error de dedo, as we say, this typo, made it very clear, made it very easy to follow. Where did this hashtag come from? Where did it start? You know, and he actually looks at individual accounts. He looks at all the different, uh, you know, what's the history behind these. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite extensive. There's no, there's no time to get into it now. But you give an idea that none of this is real. This is all artificial, right? That, why did this do this? Juan Carlos Monedero had a really good interview, and he says it. Because they're not popular. Because there's no way to authentically get this kind of response from the population. So what do you do? Well, you turn to the spaces where you think that you can have an influence, right? Something very curious is happening in this election, which is that Claudia, to date, Claudia Scheinbaum, candidate of Morena, hasn't given an interview to one of the major networks here. She's basically running her campaign outside of their influence. They don't have the influence. That would have been unheard of in Mexico two two cycles ago. You have to talk to the big media they don't anymore i mean she probably eventually will right but the point is is that that influence that they used to have to convince people to fool people through the mainstream media outlets no longer works so they adjust their strategy they now go and do this and try to engage in you know, unscrupulous behavior on social media to try to inflate these these this idea that I'm lo narco presidente or Sochit Presidenta, all Narco president or Soch <laughs> 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 'cause uh, yeah. they can't I mean <laughs> cool. like I said it goes on and on. You can actually see um, you know, the the way that they, they use these same bot armies to inflate the the totally garbage, unfounded reports that the Mercenary operation known as Latinas puts out there. It's not a journalist outlet. It is not, you know, as an aside, it's quite funny to see some people talking about this interview that Lopez Obrador did with um, Ina from Canal Red, saying, oh, he's, he accepts an interview with a propagandist, and then they will, the next tweet over retweet something from Us pretending like that's objective journalism, right? Like, at least be consistent. If you're going to call Ina a propagandist, which I would not agree with, I think she's a person who has very much clearly established an independent editorial line, then you can't treat Loret de Mola as a serious actor. He's also a propagandist. At least be consistent. Anyway, on and on. He actually even makes reference to a similar situation where they were able to um, uh, 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 reveal the unscrupulous behavior via bot armies and troll centers in the case of the Ecuadorian election there, et cetera, et cetera, right? Again, I want to emphasize this. What's happening in Mexico has been done before in other countries in Latin America. None of this is new to any of us, which is why none of it is particularly surprising.
1: Yeah. And as if this is going to make up for a lack of a ground game, right, which they don't have.
0: At all. They're and they're not, not likely to develop, right? That's the thing that always people forget. People think that the opposition being together means they're going to collaborate. They don't like each other. The pre-militancy is not going to go out there and pound the doors and pound the sidewalk to get votes for Sochi Galvez because they do not like the pan. And the pan is the smallest of the political parties. They have the least amount of grassroots supporters. They're, they're going to struggle. So that brings us to another element which I think is also important to talk about, which is something that was just revealed today, or sorry, this week. The ultra-capitalist Atlas Network. So what we've seen, Morena has denounced that part of the actors that is behind this uh, trending topic, this bot army troll center campaign to try to make López Obrador seem like he's in cahoots with organized crime, looks like it stems in part from the Atlas Network. Now, what is the Atlas Network? I actually like the quote here that uh, Vincent Bevins, who did a whole piece, um, here he's talking about the protests in Brazil. But he says, other scholars have called the neoliberal common turn. And I think I actually think it's a pretty accurate description. Yeah, Atlas Network is a right wing neoliberal, deeply, deeply wedded to the neoliberal project network Of organizations and think tanks to help promote their ideology throughout the world. It's funny to see some journalists who are like, oh, Mexico's election is not a competition between the left and right. Meanwhile, one candidate, Xochitl Galvez, is clearly benefiting from the support of the ultra-capitalist neoliberal Atlas Network. Now, what do we say about the, what else can we say about the Atlas Network? So they are tied to organizations that are active here in Mexico. This chart that was prepared by Morena uh, mentioned some of them. Mexico Evalúa, Instituto Mexicano para la Competitividad, which is financed by the, the Mexican Chamber of Commerce, essentially. The Conciencia Nacional por la Libertad Religiosa, Cátedra Vargas Llosa. Now, Vargas Llosa is an interesting name. Remind us, Kurt, who did Sochi meet with when she was in Madrid very
1: recently? <clears throat> The foundation for, what is it? The foundation for liberty? For liberty, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is um, Vargas Llosa's baby with its headquarters in Spain. The, the funny thing is that Vargas Llosa himself didn't even bother to show up. Right? This is uh, how, how, how poor, poor Socha's reputation is. But she did go, uh, and before she went to genuflect to the Pope, she went to genuflect to the uh, to the Vargas Yosa uh, Foundation there, uh, and and try to get there and try to get the support. And this is uh, an appendage of of the worldwide atlas network, right? So you know this is why she went to Spain. It wasn't to meet with Mexicans resident in Spain. Actually, her you know the meeting she had there, there was like twenty people there. I was going right? to say all twenty of them. Yeah. <laughs> Just like when she went to New York, right? It was for the. Um, it was to go to the wilson center and sorry wilson center in washington and the council of the americas in new york in spain it was to go to uh, the you know foundation for for liberty and, and democracy there right
0: yeah and then, as we can see in this article right so mario delgado the the president of morena the party he actually accuses uh, atlas network of being behind the the these bots the troll the troll center who are trying to inflate this this hashtag and interestingly enough, we'll get to this in a second, who heads Atlas Network's activities in the region, in Latin America? None other than Roberto Salinas Leon. Oh, That's what an a interesting Last name, Salinas. Who does, that, who does that sound like? Oh, it turns out he's related to Ricardo Salinas Pliego, one of the fiercest members of Mexican bourgeoisie that criticizes the president, López Obrador. So... Uh, and who just was, a little bit a more. Back
1: tab, has a back tab of billions of pesos in unpaid taxes. Right?
0: Pay up, Ricardo. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they just took away his golf course, so he surely get more mad.
1: Yeah, but and now, you- I'm not a
0: fan of Monbiot, But this article here, for people, you know, don't accuse me of, uh, you know, uh, being unfair to the Atlas Network. He asks here, what links Rishi Sunak, the UK's right wing prime minister, Javier Milei, Argentina's far right president? and Donald Trump, which we all know about, the shadowy network behind their policy. The Atlas Network, dark money junk tanks, are behind neoliberal policies around the world, and you may find its leaders on a resignation honors, resignation honors list near you. So there you have it. This is the Atlas Network. This, these are the people behind. The neoliberals are behind Sochi Galvez. But before we close on that, they actually, in the interest of fairness, responded to Mario Delgado's criticism. And they say the following. I'll read it out to you. Over the last 24 hours, certain high-ranking political figures in Mexico have made completely unsubstantiated claims about Atlas Network that simply aren't true. That's kind of redundant, but okay. Okay. <laughs> but I'll come to the end. Atlas Network has always been transparent about our mission to strengthen the freedom movement and increase prosperity for all people. So we encourage any interested party to visit our website and learn the truth for themselves at atlasnetwork.org. Okay. So I took him up on that. I could not find any piece of documentation on their website that actually says where their money comes from, right? They say the vast majority of Atlas network funding comes from pro-freedom individuals and foundations, which are proud to advance individual liberty, blah, blah, blah. You know, if they're so transparent, why not say, where does your money come from? Who's actually behind you? Now, according to Mario Delgado, Who's it's your U.S. capital. It's the U.S., now, we have to look into that. I'm not like Natalie. I'm not going to go out there and repeat claims without actually investigating them. I think it's worth looking into who's actually behind them. But I tried to do my work. I took them up on their generous offer to check out their website, and here's what I found. I found a contribution page from their tax documents, which doesn't say any of the people possibly to protect their individual privacy. That's fine. I can respect that. But it would be good to know who gave over $5 million, over $2 million, a million and a half. Half a million, a million dollars, nearly a million dollars. These are persons. You can see it. Person, person, person. Who's behind the Atlas Network? Might it be somebody like the Koch brothers? Might it be other people who are interested in advancing their neoliberal agenda? But here's the last thing, and I want to finish on this. It's quite interesting what I did also find, which is this. So we mentioned Roberto Salinas. He's an independent contractor, also in these tax documents. He's the Director for their activities here in the Americas, he makes 150,000 U.S. dollars for that service, and it's quite interesting to see that this man, quite literally a member of Salinas Pliego's family, a man who clearly has a political agenda. Well, where is the Atlas Network most active? Raj this is from the second largest television
1: network in this country, right? And Tebe
0: yeah. This is from the Atlas Network's very own report. It says right here. 2022 annual report, grant funding across the world. Look at where they're most active. Latin America and the Caribbean. 1.6 million in grants. Europe and Central Asia, also very active. But clearly, this region is a priority for them. So this idea that, oh, they're just pro-liberty advocates, we've seen what they've done in Argentina. We saw what they did in Brazil. They were one of, in that interview that I shared with uh, Vincent Bevins, he goes at length about their role in helping prop up these AstroTurf groups there, which eventually led to Bolsonaro becoming president in that country and the horrible presidency that he presided over. And that's kind of what they're trying to do in Mexico. They're going to use their money to try to inflate this candidate, Xochitl Galvez, despite the fact she's not popular, despite the population is clearly satisfied with López Obrador and would like to see continuity, in order to pursue that neoliberal agenda.
1: And if they can't do that, well, they'll uh, divide the society and uh, try to do it down the road. And there you have it, really. You know, I mean this, this really brings it around full circle just to end, right? You've got a series of hit pieces, right coming out of US media. And then of course, repeated in the echo chamber down here. Right? You've got the conservative candidate. Going off to you know on her um, colonial tour of the United States and Spain, right to you know vow fealty and and, and bend her knee uh, you've got a rally that is supposedly nonpartisan but really is that alleges that democracy is under attack right and you've got massive money right actually morena just put in filed an official complaint with the National Electoral Institute this week about all the money that's behind those bot farms and the narco president. I, um, I don't have much faith that the electoral institute's going to get very far with that. Um, but this is what you know. progressive campaigns have always had to deal with in, in, in Mexico, right? massive amounts of, uh, uh, of, of black money. You see it all, and, and you see, well, this is hybrid warfare. Right This is a slow motion coup attempt right? with all the usual suspects, so finally, because we've gone a bit long here, don't be fooled don't be fooled by the great lady don't be fooled by ProPublica don't be fooled by the Baker Institute don't be fooled by the Atlas Network because they're trying to play you they're trying to as you as English speakers I'm talking about they're trying to play off. The caricature of Mexico that they've fed us our entire lives as being a backward country of people who can't govern themselves, plagued by violence, and an exporter of immigrants. They're trying to play off all the stereotypes that they've put into our heads, our entire lives, in order to further their own economic interests in the energy fields, and that includes lithium, that includes oil, that includes the entire electrical grid, with regards to food policy and Mexico's attempt to be self sufficient in foodstuffs, right? While the United States is trying to shove um, genetically modified corn down people's gullets, right? And keep, <clears throat> you know, um, the obesity epidemic and overdrive, right? And all of that, right? While it's trying to keep Mexico as a faithful and subservient pawn to all of their interests across the board, but they do it by weaponizing discourses like democracy, like good governance, like NGOs, like this, like that, because they want you to fool, they want to fool you into thinking that they're the good guys. And the people running the country right now who have basically (laughs) taken the country out of the maws of real disaster, one more neoliberal Saxena and who knows where this country would have gone, right? who have pulled the country back out of the maws of, maw of that, they want, <laughs> they want you to think that they're the bad guys. The people who were in cahoots with the drug cartels want you to think that it's the other guy who were in cahoots with the drug cartels. They want to turn history upside down. They want to flip everything over. And because Mexico hasn't reported in the English-language media, they think they can pull one over on you. And not one, but two, but three. And all the rest they are going to come in these coming
0: weeks that we will be covering on this podcast. That's right. That's just what I was going to say. That's why we're here, to, to counter that narrative, to give a different version of events. And for those of you who stuck with us to the end, I want to let you know that actually for our next episode, we want to do something special, something a little bit different. Hopefully the Internet holds up because these mass events tend to – uh, contaminate all of the networks, and it's very difficult to do things while you're on the ground, but we're going to make an effort to try to report live from Claudia Scheinbaum's launch campaign rally in the Sokoló on March 1st, so this coming Sunday, very soon, uh, and fill you in on the takes of other people. It's not just us, right? We're just the voceros. We're just spokespeople for what's actually people really feel and think in this country. Try to get them to come on and talk to people live in a live stream and hear about, from directly from the Mexican population, what they think, why they decide to show up to the streets uh, and show their support for Claudia Scheinbaum. Things are going to get really, really exciting very, very soon. Uh, we'll likely be publishing more frequently as well, uh, so that uh, we don't go too long, and also uh, address now that the campaign is going to officially be- begin on March 1st and runs until June 2nd, Election Day. So there's going to be plenty of things to talk about. I think it's going to be really interesting, and hopefully this will be useful to you to counter that narrative and understand a very different perspective, a more grassroots perspective, a leftist perspective. This has been Soberanía, the Mexican Politics Podcast. I'm your co-host, José Luis Granados. Say bye for now. I'm Kurt Hackbarth.
1: (laughs) See you next time.